what I'd like for us to do now is to have some time to talk a little bit back and forth about your experience and about the instructions and why this works and how it works. And So I'd like you to ask me questions or to tell me some of your experience. I would most particularly like to start with uh, the last instruction, and if you noticed something, particularly about those last minute or two of practice, where I said, really, really do this with as much intention and focus as you can. Did you notice something particular about that? Anybody? Yeah, tell me your name first. Carla. You want to say something? Oh, started crying. You want to say something else about it, or? Thank you very much. Um, the you know. Um, I realize that was a very intimate question to ask, so I'm going to just recognize that and thank you for answering it with such candor. Um, that word healing, Carla using the word healing, I'm doing healing. I think we all are, all the time, healing from, in different degrees, certainly we're more challenged at different times in our lives than other times. But we're always healing from whatever it is that has separated us from the uh, refuge place of a contented heart that we all start out with. I think really we, um, if we weren't besides ourselves, literally, with overwhelm or with fear or with exhaustion or with disappointment, we live at home in peaceful hearts. We keep getting frightened out of our restful place. We're trying to heal our hearts back in some way. Someone gave me a wonderful image recently. They said uh, they had learned, someone who's an artist and a craftsperson, I think was talking about when a really... Um, a uh, valuable uh, piece of ceramic or vase gets uh, broken. People will mend it with gold and uh, then it holds together the best kind of glue. You think about that. We are all, if not currently in the middle of a very painful healing we have been and we will be. And we are always, to some extent, pulling ourselves together. I think about ourselves as mending ourselves with gold all the time. And when we get all finished with lives, maybe if we're lucky, we'll really have golden hearts in some way. Um, we wish they wouldn't get fractured as much as they do. I was explaining of a a, um, uh, a chart of um, 
the capacities of the heart, the paramitas the other day. Loving kindness is one of those capacities of the heart. I was explaining about how all these capacities of the heart are developed over a lifetime and uh, what benefits to our being happen from each of these qualities being developed. And I used the word composing. I said it has a very composing effect on the mind and on the heart. And someone said, what does composing mean? It's an odd word. We don't use it a lot. I said, well, it's not exactly calm. This calm, at least in the text, has more of a sense of uh, unruffleability, tranquility. So composing is more or less the ability to put yourself together. And so I think about healing and mending as the ability to re-put yourself together again. So what else happened to you as you, yeah? You asked about the last moment and how it was different from the earlier. And earlier it was like, if I work at this long enough, maybe I actually can be happy or mm-hmm. But the last moment, despite myself, it was much more like the smile that you recommended earlier. Mm-hmm. That as when I smiled, I felt happier. When I said to myself, may I be happy, despite every intention, <laughs> I actually was happy. <laughs> no, this is very serious. Thank you very much. What's your name? This is, it's not unhappy, but it's very serious. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, I, there are several things about it that I think are very important. One is that time, sometimes you say time is of the essence. You know, time doesn't matter a lot. I, uh, I think, uh, certainly over time, cultivating particular capacities of the heart, including the capacity to compose itself, pull itself together, and respond with kindness is a habit of the heart. Moment to moment, it's not like a lot of time is required. In any particular moment, you only have that moment. And there's something about the quality of determination that arises in the mind when you know that you only have a short amount of time and say, okay, now you have two minutes or one minute to shift your opinion, or to shift your heart, or to have another view. There's something about that that causes the mind to wake up so much. You know, this is how I think it works. This is this is going to be uh, a, a, a kind of a mechanical image. And um, well, let me not qualify it. Let me just tell you the image. I think that the mind and the heart, which, by the way, in the Pali language, are the same word. Uh, are infinite in space. My friend, uh, my friend and colleague and teacher Sharon Salzberg has talked about cultivating a heart that's as wide as the world. You think about that. I think our heart by its nature is as wide as the world. And when it startles, it gets smaller. It closes in. Here's a, here's a tiny story. Uh, you all probably know that, uh, oh, it, it, last summer, a couple, six months ago, uh, my friend Jack, our friend Jack, wrote a book, and it was published last summer. And uh, there was a book party honoring him. And um, uh, I was out of town for that book party. 
So I called a few days later and I said, how was the party? And he said, it was great. And we had two friends who live in Los Angeles who were supposed to fly up that afternoon for the party that I knew about and just stay, stay for the party, stay overnight and go back to Los Angeles. And I said, how are Davine and Alan? And he said, well, they didn't come because Davine got food poisoning. So I called Davine. I said, what happened? She said, it was a terrible thing. I got on the plane in Los Angeles and had something to eat in the airport. And I got food poisoning on the way. By the time I got to San Francisco, I was so sick, I could hardly get off the plane. And really, I was terribly, terribly ill, and they had to call the paramedics, and they had to call an ambulance to go to the hospital. She said, on the way, I, I really, I have never felt so sick. And uh, the uh, medical personnel on the ambulance was um, doing whatever they had to do, setting up an IV with fluids, I guess. She said, I, I was desperate. I was worried about whether I'd survive. And this wonderful voice said, you'll be okay. And she said, I just so believed this voice. It was so full of confidence. In the end of the story, she went on to tell me about she went to the hospital. She was treated. She got better. They went back to Los Angeles. So this long conversation, because when you've been traumatized, it's very good to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. It takes some, we all do, don't we? It's like a nightmare. When something happens to us terrible, we go over it and over it and over it and over it. And that way we kind of uh, take some of the alarm out of it. We get used to it a little bit. So we talked about how she phoned the personnel and the restaurant supervisors in the Los Angeles airport and told them which place and so that they could check it out and looking out for other people which is, of course, the right action to take afterwards to protect other people from the same experience. And uh, talked about that she'd done that, talked about uh, the the spiritual insight of you never know. You think you're going to a book party and instead you go to a hospital. You don't know. Uh, or you worry about whether or not the plane will fly safely. A plane flies safely, but the food doesn't sit safely. You don't. It's a very precarious life. So that... What started out as uh, just a, a simple conversation about uh, about a food poisoning really ended up to be a discussion of the vastest spiritual truths. You never know from one moment to the next what's going to happen. Life is a gift from one moment to the next. She said, you know, I thought about it, and I thought, what a grace that I was only going to uh, San Francisco. Suppose I'd been going to Fiji or something, and I'd been out in the middle of the ocean, and would they have been able to treat it, and would I have been all right? And uh, really, thank goodness, all my the things just worked out this time. What a gift it is to be in life! She said, I felt so pleased and fortunate that that particular ambulance attendant was so reassuring that his faith carried me, and how other people's faith can carry us through bleak moments. It's completely a spiritual conversation mind and heart open to what a blessing it is to be in a life moment to moment. He said, we're all finished. She said, you know what? I'll tell you something silly. I said, what? She said, well, the next morning in Los Angeles, when I was all better, I weighed myself. (laughs) And I had only lost half a pound. (laughs) And I was so annoyed. Because I thought at least five pounds I should have lost.
So is that, it's such a wonderful story. I, I really have checked with my friend. I said, I could change your name if you want and I'll not tell the story about you. She said, no, no, you could tell the story. Because we all do that. We have moments where we realize life is completely and utterly, amazingly, always a gift. And then someone doesn't send us a valentine. And the mind gets all closed. Or we get stuck somewhere in a, you know, and, and we don't get home in time to whatever, see the Super Bowl. And the mind gets all disappointed. Is it, but in the vast scope of things that we, that we're still alive, you know, thank goodness the heart opens with the incredible gift of a life. And then one false move, boom. You know, it just doesn't stay there. But, so now we're back again to Deborah's insight about in order to open the mind, you don't need a long period of time. You don't, it doesn't take but a second to close it. It doesn't actually take very long to open it if you know where the latch of it is and if you're committed to having it open. If we really know that we will feel better when it's open, I really liked it, Deborah, that you said, in spite of myself, I felt happy. You know, which everybody laughed about a little bit. I heard when, when Deborah said that because on the one hand, it sounds like that's silly in spite of ourselves. You know, why would it be in spite of ourselves? Why wouldn't we wholeheartedly always jump for feeling happy and open? If we did, we'd have to give up a lot of our stories mm-hmm. about what we like, what we don't like, who we think this about, who we think that about. Those stories keep us kind of going in the habit of who we are. Now, in fact, all of us are here today because we don't want to be in the habit of who we are. We'd actually like to be in the habit of who we really are, which is a loving and thoughtful and kind and generous and open-hearted person. But it takes the shifting of habits. I also want to say about that shifting of perception from my story to giving up my story is a, is a complex one, you know. Um, I remember Don Juan and, and Castaneda's book said, uh, give up personal history. Is, do you remember this? This is now 30 years ago. Carlos Castaneda and all those books about the sorcerer's way. And one of the things that uh, Don Juan, Castaneda's um, spiritual teacher, told him was give up personal history. And I remember he used to think about that a lot, and I didn't want to give up my personal history. Even with its difficulties, I'm so used to it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Besides, it's mine, you know. And when people say about you, you know, who are you, we immediately tell what we think is our story. Well, actually, it's the pieces of our history that we have taken out and decided that this is my story, and we select certain pieces out of it, and we make our story out of it. I am this way today because X, Y, and Z happened to me, but it's actually because everything happened to me, and we just pick out some of it, make those really important, and sometimes those are the stories that are really the ones that keep the heart 
from being as open as it can be. Later on today, we'll try to work with the ways in which the heart just doesn't want to give up certain stories. If We kind of think we do. If someone came along and said, you know, if you take a sip of this water, like if I told you that this water has a secret herb in it, and if you drink a sip of this water, you forget every story that has a grudge in it. Who here would take a sip? <laughs> not sure? You're not sure? Yeah, really, who would take a sip of it? You forget every grudge. Okay. But... Some grudges, they just stick in there. Would that there were a water that did that. So thank you very much, Deborah. We don't need a lot of time. Just need to know what is the escape route from that the mind has closed in to open it. Like if, the, like if you have a loose window pane, the window suddenly slams shut, you go open it again. It's not that hard. Sometimes it's a little bit stuck. You open it anyway. So... What is it? We have the possibility with a, we're so filled with delight and amazement about life that we have an open heart on everybody and we're easily startled into closed heart. There's another way of thinking about this practice is how in spite of ourselves, boy, am I having a good time telling myself my story, we could, in spite of ourselves, say, I'll just put down the story and have an open heart instead. It's a better trade, actually. So what else? Yeah. I had a real strong experience of the connection of mind and body in this meditation. One second, and I've been having a real emotional challenge, a lot of fear, a lot of gripping, and it's been affecting my heart. When you talk about heart, I'm thinking about physical heart. You see a lot of constricting and nervousness and irregularity, and that's scaring me too. So the only thing that's been able to Lest I not forget all the other things I wanted to say but what you said earlier. Yes. Um, um, I think I won't forget. I want to say something about that, sometime, about the yes all the time. Some, I, I hope that this will be uh, the A, lasting teaching that you take away from today. Sometimes people say to me, because, because uh, of course, here at Spirit Rock we teach metta and we teach mindfulness. And we teach retreats called mindfulness retreats and retreats called metta retreats, and sometimes we combine them. And sometimes people ask me, how much uh, time should I be, what percentage of the day should I be doing metta practice, and you know, how much time should I do mindfulness practice? The answer to that, I tell you in advance, you probably already figured out, is you do metta practice 100% of the day, and you do mindfulness practice 100% of the day, because they, they, in fact, are the same practice woven into each other in disguise. You cannot mindfully open to each moment of experience, however it is, in a balanced way, not pushing it away and not grasping onto it, but with a loving heart. There isn't another way to do it.
And you cannot be moment to moment in a non-adversarial, appreciative, well-wishing, benevolent relationship with your experience unless you pay attention every moment of the day. So you need to be doing them. And it doesn't mean that you need to be saying to yourself, breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out all day, or may I be free from danger all day because we need to get up in the morning and talk to people and go to work and do all kinds of things. So when I think about practice, it's not just the formal practice of making phrases or of noting experience. It is the life practice of responding and responding with alert, awake mind and open heart. That's the end part, Stephanie. Now we go back to the mind-body experience, which I'm so really gratified that, first of all, you discovered your body and your heart got more eased by doing this, and that it was so clear to you that when the alarm came up, the story came up, but what if what if my heart is really in trouble, my physical heart is really in trouble, what if this, what if that, that you could feel some of that again. By the way, that's normal. It is normal when we have a uh, a thought about somehow being imperiled that our heart beats faster. It's supposed to. I mean, really, it's what allows us to leap out of the pathway of, of uh, cars coming around corners or to catch our balance when we stumble. We're supposed to get frightened. Our whole neurology gets frightened. We make more adrenaline. We make whatever it needs. Someone accosts us, we make enough adrenaline to suddenly run very fast or get away. So it's a very uh, normal response of the body. What's extra is the going over a bad story after it already happened, which we do, which then recreates adrenaline and keeps the mind frightened. What's extra is worrying about situations that in fact, we don't have a lot of control about making up possibilities, hypothetical futures that aren't happening now. We have to jump out of the pathways of careening cars, but we could sit around and imagine careening cars all the time. That To be able to say, at this moment, I really am as safe as my body can be. That's, by the way, one of the reasons for the instruction in metta practice, sit in a way that your body is comfortable. That's why when we give retreat instructions, we're very careful about setting up the rules for living in community so that everybody can feel safe, so that we are as physically safe as you can imagine. I mean, anything can happen, but in the realm of human possibility, we're as physically safe in this moment. So that awareness you have, there's one more thing that I wanted to say about what you said. Ah about really saying something with fervor because this is a really um, um, potent in this, uh, or really um, particularly um, worrisome thing happening in your life right now. You really are worried about yourself. Um, There is a quality of difference between my well-wishing when I'm just wishing well in a kind of a panoramic way and when I know someone is in particular trouble. You know, when you think about making prayers for someone. On Wednesday mornings, we think about who in our group 
that you know that we know that's all the time here. By the way, you're invited to come at any time. It's completely an open group. But when we know someone and they've been here a while and we know that they're ill or they're having a surgery that morning and you really are sending them good wishes, there's a kind of a fervor because there's that heightened alarm about it. Someone in your family is in peril. There's a fervor about that. How to really have a fervor about the well-being of all beings. <coughs> of course, we're all in peril. Mm-hmm. But how to have that fervor without having a fear about it is really the edge of a practice. Because when we when we don't when we're not alarmed in that moment in a heightened way, the mind does other things. You know, does a little bit of well-wishing. It has a little fantasy, a little bit of more wishing. It thinks, I wonder when the lunch break is going to be, you know. There's a little bit more well-wishing. Thinks, I said, should have sat in a chair. It's not, it's not so comfortable on the floor. You know, the, you know, that's just what minds do. You know, they, don't, they do a little bit, a few wishes, and they take a nap a little bit. It's just what they do, you know. Uh, it's probably, first of all, it's normal, and it's probably... The mind discovering how it's gearing up with maximal effort for really being able to stay focused on open-heartedness. Maybe um, we're looking for the time when our general response to the world is just open-heartedness. But when we're really, really extra alarmed about something. We have the ability to pull in all the attention. It really doesn't wander. You said, you know, I could really, really focus on that and my body really calmed down. That's really the one last point I want to make on Stephanie's question and I'll have someone else's. One of the things that maybe I'll have some time to elaborate on later is that there is that uh, component of concentration where all of the little bits of attention that float out here, when is lunch, that float out there, I should have sat on a chair, float down that, <coughs> wonder if we're really finished at 4.30 today, wonder if I'm really going to like this, I wonder, um, signed up for all four, really? Or I should sign up for all four, this is really good, or whatever the mind is, it just does its little dance of, you know, sifting through thoughts. All of a sudden you say, whoa, and it's and it all pulls itself together over whatever and gets concentrated, there are certain qualities of the concentrated mind, or five qualities of the concentrated mind, that actually are an antidote to fear in the body. One of them is the concentrated mind is calm, just has more calm, has a certain amount of rapture in it, which is the antidote to fearful body. It doesn't move around making up stories. It stays absolutely one-pointed. And it's actually the stories that proliferate and frighten us. It sustains itself. It keeps on going. And then it gives a little bit of confidence because what sustaining does is it, uh, it, um, um, it's the antidote to doubt. Because I can do this. I can really do it. It can make a difference. There's a fifth. Um, sustaining doubt.
where it wakes up the mind. Uh, if you can use all of your attention here, then you aim it very precisely. When you aim the mind very precisely, it wakes it up, it dispels all the torpor in the mind, so that if you were sleepy before that, and you suddenly said, whoa, I have one minute to really wish, you wake up the mind. Don't really have to take a nap when you're sleepy. You wake it up with aiming it clearly. That's true of loving-kindness practice. It's true of mindfulness practice. It's true all the time. I was on a retreat one time in Hawaii. Maybe later I'll tell you the whole story. Should I tell you the whole story now? <laughs> I want to have the next question, and then I'll see if it fits. What's in there? Thank you very much, Stephanie. What's the next question? Yeah. Did you have something special in mind? Because I have something well, special in mind. You know, all of the other three seem really easily to me, but my body Okay. So here's the story. What's your name? Eileen. Eileen? Thank you very much, Eileen. Now I get to tell you a little bit of a story about why those phrases, and which will put them in a context and also give you permission to make other phrases if that one doesn't connect for you. When I learned loving-kindness practice at least 15 years ago, I guess, I had been doing mindfulness practice for a long time, and then uh, my teachers began to teach uh, metta practice, and so I began to study it intensively. And I learned a certain set of four phrases, and I learned them from my teacher who said, say these phrases. So I just said them. Um, and I never thought about questioning whether I should say them or not or make other phrases. And they were phrases that, they were these phrases. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Subsequently, in, in fact, when I am on my own and singing my phrases to myself, either out loud or in my mind, which is what I mostly do, I mostly say that because I learned them that way. And they're grounded in that way. And they, they, fit the, they scan the tune that I sing to myself. And I've done them a million times, so they just feel right. And at the time, my teacher told me to say those phrases because that's what it says in some of the um, traditional scripture. Uh, there weren't a lot of, uh, lot of books in English on metta practice. Since then, uh, people, uh, especially Americans, teaching metta practice, uh, my teacher Sharon Salzberg among them, have begun to amend the phrases. All of my friends who teach here with me, who have metta practices, have amended the phrases in different ways to suit them. I didn't amend mine because I'm so used to them, and I'm fine with them. Some people said they didn't like the word danger. They didn't like to say the word danger. It's like, 
even in the negative, may I be free of danger. Some people like to say, may I be safe. Fine, if you want to say, may I be safe. It doesn't scan my song that I sing to myself, so I need all those syllables in there, may I be free of danger. May I be safe, I don't have a long enough song. So, um, But some people say, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. That doesn't work for me quite so well. May I be happy for sure, but that would work. May I be healthy. I have a little bit of... um, I don't want to practice that as my whole metta, because I certainly want to be healthy. But I won't be always. We're not always. And sometimes I'm sick now, and then I get better. And even when I'm sick now, and I want to get better, I certainly hope it'll happen, pray that it will happen. But I really want to have words that I have said enough so that they're the habit of my neurology, that I can say them if my health is good or not good. I want to be able to be in the last days of my life and say, may my body be peaceful. I was with my aunt two weeks ago, I guess three weeks ago, just before she died. I went to Florida to be with her for a while. She was 81 years old, had quite a full and interesting and vigorous life and knew she was dying and hadn't been sick until two years ago and done all kinds of treatments to try not to die, but she died anyway. And uh, was in the last days of her life in a hospice where they took very good care of her. And she was really peaceful about dying. She said, I feel fine. I had a good life. I feel very peaceful. The closest thing to, uh, I have no complaints. I heard that once about some venerable teacher who's... uh, Final words, but thank you very much. I have no complaints. <laughs> and, I, and here's my old aunt who didn't hear about that venerable teacher, but said the equivalent of I have no complaints. Be an incredible thing to not only to die with no complaints, but to live without complaints. You know, with the desire to change what needs to be changed, but without complaints. It's the complaints part that's extra. So I want to be able to say, as she did, here she is, little old shriveled body lying in a bed in a hospice. That's a very peaceful. So I want to be able to say, may my body be peaceful. When I am singing in my own mind and I'm singing, may I have physical happiness. I certainly like it when my body feels great. But I want to have physical happiness. I want to be able, as long as this physical body is viable, to be all right in it. This is what it is right now. I will tell you a little tiny story right now because it 
It is one of those teaching stories that sustained me in my life. Many, uh, for 20 years, at 15 at least, maybe 20, I taught yoga in the College of Marin. And um, uh, I, just, I taught a class called uh, Yoga for Older Adults. And in those days, they were older and I was not. <laughs> and uh, I really thought they were older. You know, I was, I, the, the, they were supposed to be 55 and over. Uh, I was 40. I thought they were older, you know, now. Uh, and it was a little bit more modest in its requirement. I also taught for not older folks, but I thought of, you know, I taught a more modest class for the older folks. And um, a, a, an older man came one day, and he came on those kind of um, half crutches that you lean on with your arms for support. And... Um, he came and he said, I heard about this class and I'll try it. And he stayed in the back of the room. And um, my way uh, of teaching, a way I like very much, is uh, uh, not to go around fixing people so much, but to do the practice and people watch and they do it the best they can. So I did whatever I did in the front and he did whatever he did in the back. And class was over and everybody left and I went back to greet him. And uh, he was very um, appreciative, and he said, uh, I thought you did a good job, and I, um, I'm glad that I came. He said, but I won't come back. Uh, he said, it's, uh, it's just too hard for me. Well, just in a regular way, it was. Uh, and then as he was going out the door, he turned around, he looked at me, and he said, uh, I just... Uh, felt that I wanted you to know that I was a member of the uh, uh, crew of the 1918 U.S. Olympic rowing team. And uh, I was glad to know that. And uh, I, I knew at that moment that that was going to be a really important teaching for me. So uh, my sense now of what called up that story to tell you is he didn't seem grieved about being where he was. He was where he was. And the truth was, it was too hard for him. He wouldn't come back again. That's the truth. And uh, to pretend it would be otherwise would cause him difficulty, probably physical and certainly mental difficulty. So he wasn't going to pretend it was otherwise. And it had been otherwise. But there's a way in which... uh, Metta practice, which includes kindness to oneself, which begins with kindness to oneself, is really a wisdom practice. This is what's true. And I, every time I think of that story, including this very moment, I understand something else that's true. He was able to tell me, this is what's true. I can't do it, it's too hard. And he was able to open his own mind so it didn't get stuck in resentment or bitterness or even sadness by telling me another piece of truth. What's also true is I was a member of the U.S. 1918 Olympic rowing team. That's also true. So he knew a key to keep the mind from lamenting. The first uh, line of the, uh, actually of the Mindfulness Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, says... um, This is the way, uh, this is the end 
This is the best way to the end of grief and lamentation. Lamentation, the interesting word. How to be able to not lament. Say, that was then, this is now. So that's a whole story, Irene, about why I am looking to say to myself, don't mind saying, may I have physical happiness? Because it's the arcane words that I use. So when I told it to you, I thought, well, I'll avoid the arcane and say, may my body be peaceful. But find what words you can that work for you, that will work for you when your body can't do what it used to do or when it's sick or when it hurts so that the metta practice is something that you can do for the whole of your life up until the last breath, really. Do you have an idea what's another line you could say instead of physical happiness or my my, my body be peaceful? Yeah. Thank you very much. What's your name? Elaine. Thank you very much. I I will remember that. That's a very uh that's um uh, I I'm very appreciating the way you put that because I also think to myself another way of perhaps rethinking that that I think of those phrases as a faith statement that sometimes people say well uh I don't I I'm I'm hesitant to say may I maybe I'll just say I am you know, I am this, I am that. First of all, I, that doesn't work for me because sometimes I'm not. And uh, it does not work for me to do uh, affirmations um, and convince myself that uh, I, a certain truth is true about me if it's not. Sometimes my mind is not happy. Sometimes my body is not peaceful. Sometimes I'm not living with ease. And saying it just makes it worse. 
because then on top of it, I'm estranged from the truth. You know, that, that, um, that doesn't work. Um, however, it seems to me that by saying, may I, it's not asking permission of anyone or anything. It's just reminding myself that it is a human possibility to feel that way. And may it come to pass that I experience that human possibility. That's also, it could happen. May it be so. It really is a faith statement that that is a possibility. In the middle of a life, we could feel safe and happy, gratified, not frightened out of our wits or out of our bodies or anything. In the middle of life, even in a very difficult time, even in very difficult times, in fact, that's the safest place to be, is to be in the refuge of one's own um, appreciative heart. Well, it's not a crazy war. Nancy? It's not a crazy war. Did you hear Nancy's question? Just Nancy is saying sometimes it's um it's counterintuitive, uh, in a certain sense in the middle of when one's life is most complicated and challenged, to sit down and say, may I be happy. There's a kind of a, perhaps it's a cultural ethos. Uh, you know, if it's not going well, get out there and do something about it. Um, don't just stay there. Just, uh, but in fact, I, I think that they're not, they're not two choices. I think, in fact, all of our lives we do something. You know, and we make lots of choices about uh, if our lives are not working in some way physically, if we need to change something about how we live, or relationally, if we need to change something about the way we're working out our relationship, or vocationally, or however it is. But I think we need to be first in a place where the things we will do are reflective of a loving heart. And then they'll actually work out in a way that perhaps will promote more, in fact, um, um, pleasure in our lives. Um, that we'll have them, that they'll come to pass because we have seen clearly and felt that we merited it. That was the other thing that Nancy said, that sometimes we feel, sometimes we feel just from the outset, um, uh, I don't deserve this. For whatever reason, it's an odd thing to think that. Uh, love to think that the Buddha said there is no one more deserving of your good wishing than yourself. It's such a lovely thing to think about. That we didn't have to, uh, that we just have to be a human being in order to um, merit being peaceful and content. It's enough of a hard job. We don't have to have first accomplish something and then deserve it. 
I heard someone in a religious context. Oh, it was uh, William Sloan Coffin. Do you remember him? He uh, 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 was the uh, chaplain at Yale at the time that Martin Luther King walked from Selma to Montgomery. And uh, there were several notable religious leaders walking in the front row, arms linked. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel was one of them. William Sloan Coffin was one of them. Martin Luther King was one of them. I heard him speak on the weekend of Martin Luther King Day. It was just last weekend I was in New York. And he said at one point, um, if you uh, uh, need to um, get approval from anyone other than God, you're too ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best thing. And I would substitute for anything other than life, anything other than truth, anything other than yourself. If you need approval from something else, too ambitious. I just love that. I've been thinking about it all week. Just like that, just for being a human being, we deserve it and we could do it. But the next piece of practice that we'll do really is the antidote, Nancy to that feeling which many people share. So when you says crazy wiring, I won't even take a show of hands because, you know, then it's too complicated. Uh, it's not too complicated to get a show of hands, but it makes complicated thoughts. Aha, all those people don't feel guilty about wishing well for themselves. And how come I'm not one of them? And how come I have this one? It's too complicated to say. I used to do that by saying, who here has catastrophic mind? More people do than don't, by the way. But then I would think, how come all those other people don't? You know, uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.